turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Our text today is verse 16 and 17 in a section of scripture that is very familiar. One of the things that is somewhat challenging when a passage of scripture is familiar is for us to look at it and say, oh yes, I believe that, I've heard that, Um, maybe it doesn't have anything particularly to apply to my life today or in the moment. But it definitely does, because all scripture is profitable. And I want to consider our passage today from the perspective of discipleship formation. What role does the scripture have in leading us to abide in Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus, and to make Jesus known? Discipleship formation is not intended to be a subset of our lives, but rather our holistic development in Jesus. And I've preached this passage many times from an apologetics perspective in terms of a defense of the faith. And I do want to be clear that I'm working from this foundation today. The Bible is true and can be trusted. The scripture provides for us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. With this as our foundation, then we can better understand our application. Beginning in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The doctrine of inspiration says that all scripture is inspired by God. The doctrine of inspiration is the teaching that the Bible is God-breathed. It is God's word to us, written by human authors, but human authors that God supernaturally guided to write what they did. We hold to what is called plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary means complete or full. Verbal means the very words or every word. Plenary verbal inspiration is the view that this is the word of God and that the Bible's words are God's words. To make progress as disciples, we need to know what the preferred vision is. What is the end goal of coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And that end goal is to be like Jesus. That's the point of it all. To bring glory to God in our lives as we grow in the likeness of our Savior. So let's look at three characteristics of Scripture about how Scripture is helpful for spiritual and discipleship formation for changed lives. The first characteristic is that Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Now, your translation may say teaching or doctrine. It means a body of teaching. So it's a doctrine of a set of beliefs. So we're not talking here specifically just about one particular doctrine or the doctrines that might be favorable toward us, but we're talking about the overall body of work. We're talking about the truth that has been delivered once and for all to the saints. Doctrine helps us understand both current and ultimate things. It helps us understand who God is, who we are, The creation, the fall, redemption, and eternal matters. From the beginning to the end and everywhere in between, 
Doctrine helps us understand these things. Doctrine provides a framework for understanding Scripture. We might be tempted at times to pull out a particular text and make it say what we want it to say. But if we understand the overall text of Scripture is within context, then we'll begin to understand the truth of what's being taught. And the big story, or the, what we might refer to as the meta narrative of Scripture, is going to embody and encompass all of those things. And we can have a better understanding of the Scripture. Doctrine provides information, but the point is transformation. It's not just about getting knowledge in our heads. It's about having truth in our hearts so that we can live and do what is good and right and true. Now, there's a great word picture for what doctrine is intended to do in Isaiah 55. And I want to read just part of it, beginning in verse 10. Isaiah the prophet connects the truths in the Bible to being like rain or snow that falls, that, that waters the earth. And here's what he says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, God's word, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I, I sent it. So doctrine is intended to do just that, that it will not return void. It will accomplish exactly what God has given it to us for. I like what Paul Tripp said. He said, God uses doctrine as a means to turn angry people into peacemakers, greedy people into givers, demanding people into servants, lustful people into pure people, faithless people into believers, proud people into humble people, rebels into obedient people, and idolaters into worshipers of the one true God. So we might think about it this way. God's intent is for the rain of doctrine to fall on us, causing the seed of the gospel to sprout and for God's word to grow in our lives. Now, I often think about doctrine as being similar to spiritual guardrails. When you think about guardrails on a highway or not even just guardrails, but also lines on the road or different symbols of what those lines mean and where you're supposed to go and where you're not supposed to go and all those things, they're intended to form a safety barrier. One is a fixed safety barrier with the guardrail. The others are more suggestive at times of what we might need to be doing. But they help us from going off of the road, and particularly if it's in an area with steep embankments or slopes. In a similar way, that's what the guardrail of Scripture does for us, is it keeps us from going down the embankment. It keeps us from going down the slope, and it keeps us on the spiritual road that the Lord wants us on. So I would say to you, as part of a church family, you should have the expectation that the teaching ministry of the church will be clear where people can understand it. It will be compelling to challenge people to follow it, and it will be consistent. And the teaching ministry of the church uses Scripture as that authority guided by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of informing and transforming. It has principles for every area of life. And the goal is not to produce 
uh, spiritual consumers, but rather committed disciples of Jesus. That's the goal of the doctrine, and Scripture is profitable for doctrine. But then there's a second characteristic. Scripture is profitable for rebuking and correcting, confronting error, calling out sin uh, for the purpose of course correction and right living. Rebuking means to reprimand or to convict by exposing. So it's like pulling the curtain back just a little bit on actions or words or behaviors, identifying them as wrong and sinful, and then responding to what we've been convicted by. So you can think about rebuke in, in several contexts, really. Rebuke certainly happens individually when we read the scripture. So when you're in your devotional time and you're reading a verse maybe you've read many, many times, but it applies directly to something that's going on in your heart, your life, your family, and you know it's out of line, and the Lord's getting a hold of you through that, and he's teaching you that there's something that needs to be adjusted, then you're getting rebuked by the scripture when you're reading it on your own. Proverbs 3 and verse 11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's instruction and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father. Rebuking happens when we live in Christian fellowship through the life of the church. When we're walking with one another and just the regular relationships and rhythms of life and we wrong each other from time to time or there's something in us that clearly is not helping our Christian life, it's not growing us in holiness and a brother or sister is willing to come alongside of us and gently correct us and rebuke us for what we're doing. That would be what the scripture would be for. In Proverbs 25 and verse 12 says, A wise correction to a receptive ear is like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. To those who send him, a trustworthy messenger is like the coolness of snow on a harvest day. He refreshes the life of his masters. How are we to rebuke within the context of Christian fellowship? Well, we're certainly to rebuke with honesty. Uh, Timothy has already been told clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that those who persist in sin, they're to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the others may stand in fear. That's the ultimate outcome of a Matthew 18 type of process where if someone is confronted privately and there's no change and then they're confronted by that person and another brother or sister in the church and there's no change and then ultimately it has to be brought to the church that's the result that Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20. So we do it with honesty. We're not doing anybody any good by not uh, being honest about what we see from the Scripture. We rebuke in love. We're to speak the truth in love is the admonition we find in the Word. We're to rebuke in humility. We're told to take the log out of our own eye, and then we'll see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. And then we are to rebuke with an appeal toward repentance. Now, I want to, I want to make this statement clearly because I think this is so important. The goal of rebuke is not rebuke. The goal of rebuke is repentance and restoration. But when rebuke comes, a person has to be humble enough to receive it from the Word and from the body of Christ and to be willing to repent of it and own their actions in order for there to be any type of ultimate forgiveness and restoration. 
And this is so important because sometimes this is the, this is the sticking point where our own pride gets in the way and we can't ever get past that point because we've never taken responsibility for what we've done. And here's what Galatians 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the goal. Correcting comes from a word meaning straight. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says that the scripture straightens us out. And that's pretty much what it does. Scripture's useful because it straightens our lives out. Now think about the example of Nathan the prophet who was a faithful friend to King David. When David's son, Adonijah, rebelled against him, two of David's closest friends and allies, Joab and Abiathar, tragically joined him in 1 Kings chapter 1. Nathan stayed faithful to David. He even warned David about the betrayal that was coming through uh, David's wife Bathsheba. But as you also know, this was not the greatest example of Nathan's relationship with David. Years earlier, Nathan confronted David about his sins of adultery and murder. David refused to repent and he tried to hide his sin. And for almost a year, he had been able to do so. But then da- Nathan visited David and told him a story about a man who had acted wickedly. David didn't know that the story was about him. And then Nathan revealed the truth. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thou art the man. Now what did he do? He ran the risk of approaching a king, which could potentially have risked his life. But if you want to know the people who really love you, think of the people who have corrected you, even when they knew that it might damage the relationship or it might even cost them personally for doing so. Those are the people who understand what this scripture means. Luke 17 and verse 3 and 4 says, Be on guard, because if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the pattern is rebuke, pray for conviction, by the Holy Spirit, repentance, forgiveness, restoration. This is the pattern of what God's word is guiding us toward. Scripture is profitable for rebuking and correcting. The third characteristic is that scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. To draw along or to form by practice is what's in view with this training in righteousness. So now he's laid the foundation that the Bible, the scripture, is God-breathed. Because it's God-breathed, it's inspired, it's profitable and authoritative in our lives. But now he's going to zero in even further on the purpose of the word. Profitable means useful or beneficial. It means it enhances well-being. So you can think about it this way. The Bible is good for us. Or to put it personally, The Bible is good for me. It is for my well-being. It is for your well-being. That's why it's said to be profitable. It's profitable for training, which does mean instruction, and it refers to the education and development of a disciple. Instruction in righteousness means the rule of a good and holy life. 
righteousness itself is the moral standard. So instruction in righteousness means that there is a light that is being shown on what is right, and there's a light that's being shown on what is wrong. And this training or instruction in righteousness has to be a central aspect of the teaching of the ministry of every faithful, God-glorifying church. Now, I want to draw a parallel from the world of Vacation Bible School and the importance of training in righteousness and the roots, ultimately, of Vacation Bible School. There was a compassionate doctor's wife by the name of Mrs. Walker Islet Hawes who sensed the need to get children off the streets of New York during the summertime. She went to New York City from Virginia with her husband, who was specializing in medical ministry to children in the late 1800s. In 1898 and 1899, Mrs. Halls rented a hall in the city's east side to conduct what she referred to as her everyday Bible school. Mrs. Halls was a Baptist. She also happened to be the sister-in-law of John A. Broadus, who was a founder and later president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So the stamp of Baptist missions and evangelistic involvement was from the very beginning uh, on uh, the very beginnings of Bible school. By 1922, there were 5,000 similar programs that were running across North America each summer. And thus began the early history of Vacation Bible School. I tell you that not just to tell you a little bit of history, but I want to make a point of application here. What fueled the early Vacation Bible School pioneers was a desire for young people to know the Bible and to be reached by the gospel. That's what fueled them. That's what remains for us today within Bible school within our weekly teaching ministries, with our overall approach as a church, we want people to know the Bible and we want people to be reached with the gospel. Training in righteousness is for kids and adults alike. It's for everybody. And that's what we want to be about as a church. Because instruction from the Bible covers every area of life. You want to know how to manage your time? There's instruction in the scripture on how to do that. You want to know how to invest and steward your resources and find instruction on that? There are literally thousands of verses that relate to that. You want instructions on family relationships, including marriage and children? There's instruction on that in the scripture. You want wisdom on how to navigate every area of your life to provide that, those guardrails And that framework through which you make your decisions and set your priorities and spend your time and your energies, then the scripture gives you the instruction for that. You want instruction on how to bear spiritual fruit through surrender to the Holy Spirit? You can find that right there in the word. You want instruction on what to expect for the future? You can find it in the scripture. Someone said, can righteousness make wealthy? And the answer, yes, with riches, it cannot be lost or stolen. Can it treat our illness? Yes, with a balm that ministers to our soul. Can it give us assurance that we will live in heaven forever? Yes, by describing those to whom eternal life is promised and by instructing us how to live like them. You see, God places a higher value 
on these spiritual qualities than he does on material wealth or health that he can also provide for us. He gives us this instruction in righteousness. So I say this to you as I come toward a close. Scripture instructs us so that we can walk in and grow in spiritual maturity and be equipped for every good work. When you get the scripture in your heart, God will water it, he will bear fruit, and you will grow. This word complete in verse 17 points to spiritual maturity. It means adequate. It means to be made whole. It is body, mind, and spirit fitted for its intended purpose. It is God making you for a purpose and his word fitting you for that purpose. That's what it means to be complete. To be equipped for every good work means to be furnished or supplied with everything that you need to serve God and to do good works. And we would say with the Apostle Paul, we've not attained it. We've not yet been made perfect or complete, but we press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of for us. Are you abiding in Jesus? How would you know? Are you spending time in his word? Are you communing with him and building your prayer relationship with him one-on-one? Are you learning and being transformed by Jesus through the word as you study on your own and also as you come together with God's people? Are you making Jesus known through your testimony with your life? That's what God's calling us to. He's calling us to abide. Just by abiding in him, you ought to be encouraged. You ought to be encouraged to know that there's a God who loves you and you can abide in him through Jesus Christ. You ought to be encouraged that you can be transformed, that what we will be has not yet come to pass. And in the meantime, we can let people know that God is good and his grace and his mercy are far beyond what we could even imagine. And for that, we're thankful. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually. Maybe you've never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. You say, Pastor, I want to take that step today. How can I be saved? How can I become a Christian? The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you can be saved. If you'd be willing to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection alone for your salvation, God will hear your prayer and he'll save your soul. He'll forgive you and reconcile you to himself. But it requires faith. It requires turning to him and embracing the truth that he embodies. As a Christian, are you abiding? Maybe you're feeling a little bit empty or maybe don't have the spiritual strength and encouragement that you want to have. The Lord will help you with that. You just say, Lord, help me, encourage me. As I abide in you, would you show me how to draw closer to you through your word, through your spirit? Lord, would you help us to be faithful in bearing witness for you, to not be ashamed of what Jesus has done for us and to be reminded of the great hope that we have in him? We thank you for the time we've had to be here together today. It's been a blessed day to see people baptized and to be able to participate in the Lord's Supper and be reminded of the body and the blood of our Savior. 
and then to be encouraged by your word and to know that it's not just so we can have a lot of information in our heads, but so that our lives can be transformed to be more like Jesus. That's what we want to do as a church. That's who we want to be. That's what we want to encourage families in. So Lord, help us to that end and protect us from being religious consumers. Help us to be people who are hungry for you. We give this time a close and response over to you and ask you to move and work in any, any way you see fit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.